0: You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Tony Duchesne here and welcome to Drinks with Tony. Today my guest is Pleasant Gaiman. Her book is called Rock and Roll Witch, a memoir of sex, magic, drugs, and rock and roll. We discuss the L.A. punk rock scene of the 70s and 80s, the legendary Disgraceland, the
1: paranormal, belly dancing, and so much more. Hi, this is Pleasant Gaiman, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony.
0: Tony You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Pleasant Gaiman. She's the author of Rock and Roll Witch, a memoir of sex magic, drugs, and rock and roll. Pleasant, how are you?
1: I am good. I just fed my cats to make sure they're not on the table, and one's already on the table. She may, she may be, <laughs> she well, may be laughing in front of me in a minute.
0: <laughs> well, maybe, maybe the spirits of the cats are vibing that we're going to be talking about your book and talking about all these things. So they're like, we want to be a part of this.
1: Yeah, they're they're totally a part of it. They were a part of writing my book too.
0: <laughs> were Were they? How How so?
1: By walking across the keyboard and making like a paragraph of typos, <laughs> <laughs> and and what,
0: did they type anything that you could use?
1: Um, no, unless it was like some kind of a CIA code or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah. they did. They did. They did provide a lot of moral support and witchy support. So, so what what was it like
0: writing this book? Because you're you're like diving into essentially what your whole life was. So
1: yeah. Um, well. I started writing it in the pandemic because um, I'd been wanting to write it for a long time and there was no time. So when I was writing it, there was you know, absolutely no other obligations that I had. So that part of it was great. But um, the, the first story in the book, um, Little Lamb was the first story I started writing and I didn't know it was gonna be the first one till the the end of it but that was that was crazy because it brought up a lot of weird childhood trauma (laughs) Uh, but someone would have to read the book to know uh, to know that I'm not going to reveal it on here
0: (laughs) it's it's um it's funny how I mean it's not funny but like when we write about childhood trauma, like people always, they, they tell me, they're like, oh, this must've been so therapeutic to write. And I'm like, no, it wasn't. It was the complete opposite of therapy. I needed therapy after I wrote about it because it was like, it was like, I was ripping apart scabs. I don't know if you had the same.
1: Well, that's exactly that. That's what really happened with that, with that story. Um, Some of the other stories were just like hilariously fun and crazy, like, you know, just stories with supernatural things happening but the reason I wound up calling the book Rock and Roll Witch because that wasn't really going to be the title there was no title it was just going to be like a collection of all my crazy paranormal stories but um I would say that more than three quarters of the book has uh people in it that were and still are my friends but are like household names in rock and roll, like, like Belinda Carlisle or the blasters or kid Congo. He's, he's all over the book. He's in, in a lot of stories.
0: And you're all over his book too. Cause I had him on about a month ago.
1: <laughs> we were talking, we were talking about it before both of our books came out. Mm-hmm. And, um, he, he said, he had just handed his in to the publisher and, um, I had two, but, uh, you know that, so they were both being written concurrently at the same time. We were on the same page as always, but I don't think either one of us knew that we were writing a book because neither one of us was talking about it on social media. And um, then um, he said, "What are you up to?" And I said, "I've just finished a, a book." And he's like, "Oh, I did too." And um, you're all over mine. And I said, "You're in like almost every story." <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so much fun. It's like. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like these are the uh, his book and your book are companion pieces that need to be read together, and then they and then there's kids part of the you know, there, here's kids' version of Disgraceland, and here's Pleasant's uh, version of You know, it's it, it's just it's a it's synchronicity is what it is,
1: yes, exactly. And that that's what lots of my life runs on. I mean, I mean. That was one of the reasons I wrote the book. I've had so many synchronicities. I've had so many psychic experiences. I've had so many paranormal experiences with like portals opening up on my ceiling. And I mean, my whole life has basically been like about rock and roll and paranormal stuff. But I think I didn't put that together until I started... Looking at, you know, when I write I make like a list of anything that I want to write about, you know, like for all my books, it's been like that. And Showgirl Confidential, when well, that wasn't going to be the title, but a lot of the stories were about being on the road, like either with my band in the or bands in the 80s and the 90s or for dancing, which has been going on. I mean, I've been dancing for like almost thirty-five years, but the touring for it's been going on for like around twenty-five years, no longer than that, probably like thirty years. So that's how that got to be a road stories book, and this one got to be paranormal just because all of the stuff I wanted to write out turned out to be about that, you know.
0: Yeah. So so when you say a portal in the ceiling, what is a what is a portal in the ceiling, and how do you connect to it, and do like do you see it and other people not see it how what like can you explain it to a fellow like me who's uh not as uh adept into the uh all the world of the paranormal
1: yes okay well first of all a portal is sort of a gateway to another world you know um like some people think that you know that there's portals in certain geographic locations you know like like um like glastonbury england could be considered a portal cuz that's always been a really like witchy city and i mean for you know for since the 1100s at least you know um or some people think there's portals near the pyramids but a portal is basically just it, some people could call it like, you know, a gateway to a time slip or to a different world or to something supernatural. But so a portal isn't a normal thing. It's kind of like a black hole, but not in space Mm -hmm. (laughs) is the best way I could describe it. And I, um the story about the portal on my ceiling, Um, I will leave out a lot of details just in case people are going to read the book as I want them to to you know, well they'll they'll, they'll read the book yeah, and we can but, have a little so we anyways, can have a little detail. <laughs> I was I was in I was in a dead sleep and all of a sudden I just woke up like that like, like boom like wide awake yeah. and um it looked like there was this green mist revolving on my ceiling uh, and um you know I'm completely nearsighted without my glasses I'm 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 Mrs Magoo pretty much <laughs> um, and my glasses are set for for to you know for um for far away vision because of being on stage all the time and driving. So I saw what I thought was green mist and and I was looking at it and I was like, is this just weird? Like when you wake up and the air seems kind of weird, you know, when, when you've been in a dead sleep and then I looked at it for a few more minutes and I was like, Nope, this is some kind of green mist revolving around on the ceiling. So then I started groping for my glasses because I didn't want to take my eyes off this thing, you know? And um, I found my, My glasses, and as I was putting them on, I thought, "Oh, they're probably coming from the smoke detector behind my bed." And I turned, and there was a light on the smoke detector, but it wasn't green; it was red. And I was like, "Oh shit! What the fuck is this? Am I dreaming?" And so I um, went into the bathroom, and you know, did some some business, and uh, you know, did some washing of the hands. And the light was on, and I walked all the way back down the hall, and then I just got into bed again. With my eyes closed, feeling very soothed, and then as like conversation started in my head, like one of the voices, uh, not not schizophrenic, but just right, right. thoughts. One of them was like, "So you're not gonna open your eyes to see if that thing is still on the ceiling?" <laughs> and then the next thought was like, "Oh no, it'll be fine." And then and then the first the first thought, you know the first voice or thought form that had popped into my head was like, "Are you fucking high?" <laughs> <laughs> So I opened my eyes and it was still there. Um, I'm not going to tell the rest of it, but uh, this was definitely like a fucking crazy, crazy ass, like supernatural experience. And for anyone listening, if you, if you don't know what a portal is, just Google it, but I'm not going to divulge the rest of the story.
0: Well, I mean, uh, let's not Google it. Let's let, like what, you don't have to do, give details on that specific story, but what would you find in a portal and what is the... Um...
1: Well, I mean, that's the thing. You don't know what you're, you're going to find in a portal. I mean, <laughs> some people think you get transported to a totally different spot in time. Some people think there could be paradise in a portal. Um, some people think that it's sort of like a gateway for all sorts of spirits, whether incarnate or disincarnate to come into wherever you are. Like a lot of people think mirrors are portals, Mm -hmm. you know, because um, mirrors have such a weird, I mean, it's a reflection, but also have you ever, you know, have you or anyone listening ever been in a a spot like in a hotel lobby or just somewhere like a barbershop or whatever, where there's two mirrors facing each other and it looks like everything goes on into a weird infinity. So, I mean, a, uh, A mirror could could even be considered a portal. And that's also why some people cover up mirrors when someone has passed in the house. That's a tradition in many cultures to cover Mm -hmm. up the mirrors, you know, so that like other spirits can't get in or so that the spirit of the deceased person doesn't doesn't get lost or something. I mean, yeah, so I... I just went on a tangent, which is one of my specialties.
0: <laughs> no, I, I find it really interesting. So, so if there is a portal, um, it's, um, it, I mean, you can choose to um, approach it, or you can choose to. Um, I'm asking the question. You can choose to go. Hey, yes, come in. What come in? Whatever is in the portal, or what do you do when there's a portal? Well, I
1: mean. Let's put it this way, portals have been around for ages and they're they're like a recognized thing, but I don't know how common they are. My my friend Steve Balderson, um, a film director that I've worked with on like lots and lots of movies. Um, when we take walks in the Hollywood Hills, he thinks that <laughs> he thinks that a place where um there's a telephone pole but one of those like metal supports around it like looking like a little gateway he will walk around into the middle of the street because he walk, doesn't want to go through it because he thinks it might be a portal and I mean when he told me that the first time he was a little bit embarrassed but I kind of was with him I was like wow I never it that way but now I'm not gonna walk through the meeting
0: <laughs> right right now now but it wouldn't physically take you to another space and time but it, it could shift your like trajectory of your life Possibly is that? I mean, the...
1: ostensibly, if you if you even believe in portals, I mean, like I said, portals are like a thing. But like, you know, some you know, there's like been some semi cliché phrases like it was a portal to a different world, or like, right. you know, or like, portal is is. I mean, I don't know what the etymology of that word is, but it's like porthole, which is like a window on a boat, you know, mm-hmm. or something. So it can either let you. It can either let you see something new, like, like, which is, I think that's why mirrors are portals or, if, you know, like, but, but like a black hole you, in space, you don't know what's in there. You don't know where it may be leading you. It might be taking you to the spirit world. It might be taking you to a different point in actual time. um It might just be a telephone pole. <laughs> with yeah. yeah attached to. It's interesting.
0: And like, well, when we talk about mirrors, it's when we, when we look in the mirror, the mirror is kind of telling us a story of ourselves. And so, and it may be a, just, we have a distorted, and I'll tell you, I have a distorted story of self because I'm like, who's that fat guy? And then I'm like, oh, wait a second. Okay. Let's, let's eat a little better. You know, it's, and, and so I can, I can use that portal to, um go okay uh, let me reflect on this and no beer is not good for me you know and things oh like yeah that.
1: I always like that moment when you've gotten out of the shower and the, the medicine chest mirror is clouded up because I was like oh this is good I look all airbrushed and shit
0: yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's like and that exactly and then that, it goes away. <laughs> that was early photoshopping that's been going on for years right uh, decades yeah, yeah. the this, this steam of the shower in the mirror <laughs> so so um where did you grow up you grew up in southern california right
1: um sort of i i came of age in southern california i was born in new york city and i lived in upstate new york in kent cliffs which was i mean i'm sure it's all built up now but when i was living there um you know in the in the very like from 19 um from 1960, I'd say when I was like one to when I was about eight, it was absolutely rural. You know, it was the foothills of the Catskills and, and no one knows where Kent Cliffs is on the West Coast. So I just, you know, for for years, I've just been telling people, oh, it's near where Don Draper from Madman lived. Um, yeah. But so that was, that was idyllic because it was out in the sticks, but I did not know that that area was, um, was super, was like super attractive and known as sort of a UFO portal until I went read Whitley Strieber's first book. And that, then that made complete sense to me because one of my earliest childhood experiences um, was I wanted to stay up and watch Lassie. And I think I was about four. This was, mm-hmm. this was like 1965 or something. And so my mom told me I could, if I, um went upstairs and put on my pajamas so I ran upstairs to put my pajamas on and I'm sitting on the floor putting my feet into the little feety pajamas and all of a sudden my whole room got yellow and and um you know this was this was like in November and so it had been dark since like 4 30 or quarter of five like up in you know in the northern part of New York so um I hopped over to the window and I looked out and I could see this. I don't. I don't. Even, I didn't know what it was now, but I still remember it clearly. So it wasn't until I was probably in my teens when I thought of this that I realized what it was. Anyway, there was this giant orange, yellow, huge ball streaking across the sky very slowly, with all these flames coming off the back of it, and it was lighting up our whole outside like the lawn leading down to a pond and then the forest tree line beyond that was all looked like like a sort of a yellowy orange negative. And I, huh. I went um I went running down the stairs. And um I ran, I was yelling, mommy, mommy, mommy. And I wasn't scared, but I was just like, what what is this? You know, I was too little to be scared or to think it was it was like odd or crazy. I had just never seen anything like that before. And um she was standing at the window in the living room that faced where the pond was with the, with like a landline phone in one hand, but like she wasn't talking into it. and, And her, her other hand was over her chest and you could still see it out there. And I, I don't remember like what she told me or, you know, at the time or what happened. I just remember me seeing it and running down and telling her and seeing her looking out the window at the same thing. So then, um, after we already moved out here, which was when I was 15, I turned I turned 16 in LA three days after I moved here. Um, shortly after we moved out here, that thing popped into my mind. And I just said, hey mom, do you remember like when there was that big crazy meteor or something in the sky? And she's like, Oh my god, yes, blah, blah, blah. All the power went out. And um, I, I did some research on it like a couple of years ago. And Apparently, that fireball or craft, nobody seems to know what exactly it was, passed over um, just north of Niagara Falls and all the, and there was a huge power station there. And, and suddenly all the power went out all the way down the East Coast to Maryland. And apparently, the New York Times had to... Um, Send trucks to some printing place in Ohio to get the Times printed for the next day.
0: Wow! And,
1: yeah, and so, so was, and who was
0: the author of that book? Whit- Whitley.
1: Whitley Streber was. Yeah. That was the book? Uh, the book was called Contact, and it was mm-hmm. about all of his UFO experiences. And he's like one of the um, one of the prime experts in in ufology because he was he was like literally abducted he's had a few other books out, and he's he's uh i've i've heard him interviewed several times um and, and he's been on coast to coast am which is one of my favorite shows the supernatural radio show um i've heard him talking about his experiences and and stuff and he he's very eloquent and very knowledgeable and and uh yeah so i was i was reading his first book before I even knew what coast to coast was. It came out a pretty long time ago.
0: Huh? It's,
1: yeah. I, he, he yeah. Does. No, I
0: love this. Cause I'm like, I'm a. there. Yeah, it's, and it's been, it's been like, it's going to be like three weeks of witchy um, segments. Cause I had Madame Pamita on last week and I, How have, amazing. Um, yeah, and um, and I had uh Jenna Ma- Matlin on yesterday, and that was all about tarot. And um, oh, I'm such,
1: I'm such good friends with with both of them. I mean, Madame Pamita for decades in real life, and Jenna Matlin just online, but always, you know, we used to talk to each other a lot all the time.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah, I I really like Pamita. She's a and um, and she even blurbed your book. I was like, oh, I, I just love how the world gets so small.
1: Sometimes. yeah she's amazing like she she i mean we we've known each other since like the the 80s um that part wow. of the scene yeah
0: and that and so you so you're 16 and come to la what part of uh or southern california what part of southern california were you in
1: i was living in la i was living kind of um in what in real estate terms would be called beverly hills adjacent but some people would call it los angeles like a little bit west of mid city, but not, not, um, you know, not getting into West LA. So, uh, anyway, um, Oh, one of the first things I did was, um, go to a a queen concert at the Santa Monica civic. And that was where I met George and Paul who later turned into, um, Pat smear and Derby crash. And, And we all, um, us three and then people that we'd meet along the line like like belinda carlisle or helen rossler um whose name was um changed to helen killer like we we all started converging and this was in 75 it was kind of like uh when i moved out here it was kind of like a weird gray area between glitter and what was about to be punk you know um Uh like and then by about 76 it started turning because those of us who read like the english newspapers like melody maker and sounds and um enemy we're seeing like little tiny pictures of you know of the sex pistols or the clash or the bromley contingents who, who had um Susie Sue and Billy Idol in it before they started bands, you know? So we were, so that, you know, that whole like sort of scene that was going on early, like in 75 and 76 splintered into two factions. The people that liked disco went straight to disco and the people that liked the rock and roll more were the ones in LA who were like in on the very beginning of the LA punk scene.
0: And I I just, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the LA punk scene. And, um, you know, when I was, I was, you know, when I was a little kid and living in a sad suburb of San Francisco, they had a radio show called maximum rock and roll that I got to listen to after I was taken to Bible study. And then I would come and listen to all these bands and it'd be like black flag. And they were like, and they would be like screaming, you know, the, the, I was just, thinking oh my god I've never heard anything like this this is what I feel inside like they're 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 I you know I didn't know they were like I didn't even know what a political lyric was I just knew that emotion and I went I feel the same and it was just like the the um being up there and thinking that you know I I just LA felt like that's where everything was but I, I had no lay of the land because I didn't even know what Oxnard was or Orange County so I I didn't know the difference you know between like where Red Cross was from and then where you know it's uh where yeah. aggression was from and the uh, and what was going on in Hollywood it's um it's it's so much fun being down here now and kind of getting a little closer to it you know.
1: Well, I mean, also in those days, none of us like we were all discovering each other's like, you know, suburbs, like like obviously anyone that lived in Hollywood and went to Hollywood, we knew what Hollywood was. But like, I didn't know where the fuck Huntington Beach was or people from Santa Monica didn't know what Silver Lake was. You know what I mean? I mean, there was no Internet, you know, and you'd have to be old enough to drive and have enough money to afford a Thomas guide to know (laughs) Or or like have grandparents that lived like you know in Whittier or somewhere to know what the whole geography of LA was like, which, which seems so crazy to people nowadays. Do you know what I mean? Because oh, now yeah. we're connected to everybody all over the world. You know.
0: Yeah. No, I, re- I I remember as a kid going to the gas station to see where. Uh, wait, what was that exit? You know.
1: Yeah! 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 <laughs> well, um. um all
0: of that's so crazy. The um when and and when did and when so you so you're starting to get into the groove and meet up with all these all these people of uh similar um similar taste. When did when did you um move out on your own and uh end up in disgraceland and um those years?
1: Well, I was I was um I was I'd been kind of living not with my family for ages because I wound up going to a boarding school, um, which was an actual, like, you know, it wasn't like a a reformatory, although there was a reformatory for girls at the end of my street in Connecticut when I was little and I was obsessed with it. (laughs) Um, um, So I... I got a scholarship to the school and I was, I was living away from my family. And when my mom told me we were going to be moving, I started crying because I thought I'd have to leave the boarding school. And I often, she said, yes. And then I, I, I hated that because I loved all those kids and I'd been turning them, you know, they were, they were like full on preppies with money, you know, it was a prep school and so I was like busy turning them on. So like the New York Dolls and David Bowie and relaxing <laughs> music, instead of like Cosby Stills and Ash and Young and the Almond Brothers, which is what they were listening to.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: And they started getting really into it. And but I liked it there, you know, because it was everyone was smart and fun and stuff. Um but uh by the time you know i got to la i was i was staying at my mom's house because i didn't have another place but then i started like i started staying with other people we had this apartment um me and dennis crosby who has been crosby's grandson rest his amazing soul um dennis and i had met in in high school or to be to be more clear like cutting high school and um he introduced me to some of his friends and we got a, a an apartment together in West Hollywood which was kind, West Hollywood was kind of a little bit run down then it wasn't what it is now it wasn't really called boys town even though you know there was probably some of that going on um but so we had this apartment there and we called it 909 and my friend Randy knew John Jet and we and we got to be really all of us really good friends with her. And she lived right around the corner in an apartment right across the street from the whiskey. And so that, 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 um, punk house or punk apartment 909 was pre disgrace land. And then, um, from 909, Kid Congo and I started going back and forth to New York a lot. So I think for both of us, we would wind up when we were between trips would, um, sometimes we'd go together and other times we would just meet there but like we i think we were both landing at our parents places and then kid and marcy blaustein who was a big part of the early punk scene and had had has you know worked with lydia lunch a lot um as like i'm not sure what she did she's she, Marcy's not a musician but they um kid and marcy got an apartment in hollywood And they asked me if I wanted to stay there. And that was what turned into Disgrace Sound. And that was owned by Mickey Hargitay, who was Jane Mansfield's um, first husband. And I was obsessed with Jane Mansfield. And uh, I thought that was great. And there was a a parking, uh, an apartment right next door to it um, that had been owned by Criswell Predicts, you know, the the television psychic. And that, That same kind of big 1920s fourplex as Disgrace On was had a um it had this big manhole thing in the yard. And we discovered that it was a bomb shelter that Criswell had built in, you know, in the in the Cold War days. Wow. And so, but it was open. And so we we went down this ladder and there was like uh It was like bunk beds and like big giant tins of survival crackers, which we immediately took up to (laughs) town because there's never any food there except top ramen. And we thought we'd add to our nutritional groups with like these 40 year old survival crackers. (laughs) Um, But yeah, we used to go and get bombed in the bomb shelter there.
0: Um, that like, that's rad what um, what was it i mean was it easy to like, get an apartment when you're that young what, what, like was rent really low and that's well, why we thought, it,
1: we thought it was kind of expensive because i think it started out at 200 a month and we're talking this is a two-bedroom apartment with like a living room and a dining room and and a really big kitchen and <laughs> We thought two hundred dollars was expensive. All of our rent was like about twenty five dollars a month, and that was a lot in those days. I'm not kidding. Yeah. Um, but you know, then and then this Graceland turned into like the biggest party house on the face of the earth. Like, well, maybe not on the face of the earth, but definitely in LA and probably in the United States.
0: Because- yeah. Oh, yeah. And just um, an icon unto itself. It's uh. And 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 you and Iris Barry were really tight at that time.
1: Yes, Iris and I were really tight then. And Belinda moved in. Um, Belinda, I think Iris had been living there, and then she moved out. And then the room became open. Her room became open, and Belinda moved in. And then when the Go Go, uh, the Go Go's, our um, lips are sealed, went to number one during the time she was living there. So it went from just. Uh, me and Belinda and Anne McLean, who had lived at 909 with us, we were living there. And um, like this kid that lived upstairs, this like teenage girl, used to play Donna Summer all the time. And then one day it just switched to our lips were sealed. And whenever the kid played Donna Summer, it would always be the same song on repeat. She would just put the arm across the stereo. So that happened with our lips you sealed and it got to the point where Belinda was literally crying holding a pillow over her head going I can't stand this I can't stand this. And did, um,
0: she, did she know that Belinda was living downstairs? No,
1: no, because who would who <laughs> would think that like a rock star that you were listening to a single lived downstairs for me. Right,
0: right. And was I mean, and even was in upset.
1: Hollywood, <laughs> even in Hollywood, if you're a teenager like the, you know, like you you just don't think that. Like I'll I'll tell you another little rock star like living place story in a second that, that, that relates to that but anyway um so yeah then Belinda had to move out and I was moved back in again to this place <laughs> but um so the other thing I was gonna say is when I first got to L A speaking of odd places for rock stars to live um like just days after I met George and Paul um pat smear and darby they 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 wanted um they said let's meet up on hollywood boulevard so we did and we were wandering around there and then they said do you want to go and visit iggy and i said sure you know and so we took a bus down sunset to like the beginning of west hollywood kind of near the comedy store and and um we got out and they're like okay this is his place and it was this giant huge, beautiful 20s apartment building that's still there that had all sorts of ornate like stonework and stuff. And because he was a rock star whose records I had, like I didn't know what a cutout bin was when I got like, you know, the Stooges first album. (laughs) I just thought, I looked at it and I was like, wow. And I thought he lived in the whole apartment building.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That
1: was like a castle he had. But um, he turned out to live in this tiny little room in the basement near the parking garage. (laughs) you know but so that's that's why like the kid upstairs a little girl had no idea that like you know her new favorite band the singer was living underneath her
0: and 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 how common that is because it's um you know like even with Iggy Pop I know you know it's just so strange that he was um so iconic yet probably was not making a lot of money for a very long time you know um yeah yeah yes I I know he
1: was like uh, I I've known him since then. I haven't seen him in in years, but I mean, like all all during those punk days and up on into the eighties, like or, or even the nineties. Like like one time, I don't remember exactly what year this was, <clears throat> but I had to an interview, and I don't even remember what publication it was now because I'm stupid. But um, he yeah, had to get interviewed for something, and and he asked he asked for for me to do it you, you know like because he knew it was going to be like normal and fun and not like weird <laughs> oh, for you to
0: interview him for the publication
1: yeah yeah yeah
0: uh-huh. yeah oh that's cool that's so much fun i was such a huge fan of iggy i think one of the first times i probably the first time i saw him was probably 1987 or 1988. Yeah. And I I remember him just like stage dived and he stage dived like on me and it just felt like God was anointing me. I was just like, yeah, it was
1: yeah.
0: So <laughs> <laughs> He's so fantastic, and it's just yeah. How much how much fun is it to go? Just when you went and when you met Iggy, were you starstruck? Um, um yes, I well I was.
1: I mean, this was like like I said. I was fifteen, but I was I was starstruck, but also at the same time I couldn't believe like he lived in this tiny little space and that his room was messier than mine because mine always looked like FEMA should come in. You know that was (laughs) one of my mom's major complaints. Like like cleaning up or doing housework is not one of my talents, put it that way, or desires. Do you know what I mean? I don't care. It's like. Like my my living room here right now looks like this disgrace on, but with costumes because I'm getting ready to leave and go and do shows. It's just like it's just like a big, big explosion of like makeup and costumes right now. But it's been like that for three days, and I don't give a fuck.
0: And and and, and so what what do you do? Uh, you're you're going you're on your way to Denver to do shows. And what yeah, like, what what are the teach, shows? What what's I'm
1: teaching. I'm doing one show called. Um, around the world in a thousand and one nights and it's a belly dance and burlesque show and i'm teaching a couple of i'm teaching a a belly dance workshop and then a workshop for any kind of dancer about um you know it's um it's called showgirl secrets and it's you know about pacing your performances and you know entrances and exits and shit like that and then i'm also working at a um at a store up there, this amazing giant witchcraft emporium called Ritual Craft. So I'm doing tarot readings there and a book signing there in Denver. And when, when did
0: you when did you get into belly dancing?
1: Um I you know, oddly enough, like my father wrote for National Geographic. And so that that
0: used to be my pornography when i was a kid
1: oh okay well my father you probably have read (laughs) lots of articles by my father because he used to write for it like almost every issue and one of the issues he was in was um you know Gaiman is a pennsylvania dutch name and he was writing about the amish and mennonites in lancaster county but there was a there was some story about turkey in that in that issue and there was a picture of a belly dancer and I cut it out and put it in this little shoe box, which was like my four or five-year-old scrapbook. <laughs> um, and I still had it in my wallet like decades later at Club Lingerie, which is a great club that has been in, you know, that used to be on Sunset Strip that hasn't been around in decades, but I still had that photo in my wallet because I thought it was the most glamorous and beautiful thing I'd ever seen when a girl came up to me during a fishbone concert, we, you know, I was in the ladies room and she asked me if I was a belly dancer and I didn't know why she was asking. And then she said, because you move like one. And I was like, wow, how do you know that? And she said, cause I am a belly dancer. And then I started like stalking her. Oh <laughs> but, yeah. Sa- no, just saying, I wanna learn how to do this. I wanna learn how to do this. Cause I'd been calling studios all over town and nobody had any belly dancing. So I, I made her come to the and Sirens rehearsal place. And um and pushed all the amps out of the way and got rid of all the cords and called up every woman I knew on on a landline, you know, on my landline phone and said, Hey, we're having belly dance lessons on Saturdays.
0: <laughs> oh, that's great.
1: Yeah, so that's how that started. And that was that was like in 1988. And then um 89, I'm pretty sure was my first. That was like in late 1988. And 89. It was the first time I ever went on stage as a belly dancer, and it, and, and fittingly enough, it was at the Roxy um, with the with the Talking Heads playing. So,
0: oh wow! That yeah, <laughs> to open for the Talking Heads as a belly dancer—that rule.
1: Yeah, how, how insane is that?
0: <laughs> yeah, and then when when did you when did you get into tarot? When did you start exploring tarot?
1: That started when I was 12. Um, I had no idea why, because no one in my family was into it. I just knew what it was and I knew that I wanted to do it. And so I put some actual cash um, wrapped up in paper in an envelope and sent away for tarot cards. And I still have my very first deck that I got. And, but it didn't come with instruct an instruction booklet, the way that they do now so I kind of could tell what was going on in the major arcana um you know but which has it you know typically has more pictorial um things on the card faces but the minor arcana I had no no fucking clue I was like what is this this is a bunch of swords what what are you <laughs> what are you supposed to say about it yeah so I would do tarot on and off until I I I got books, which was a little bit later in the 70s, and then I started doing it. And then tarot kind of fell like you know, down to the wayside for a little while because I was booking clubs. I was writing for rock and roll papers. I had my own gossip column for rock and roll in LA Weekly. And I had a band and then two bands running concurrently and then three bands running concurrently. So... Um, That wasn't my main focus, Um, but then I started, you know, just I I would do it for myself, you know, and for friends sometimes, but I wasn't doing it professionally. I think professional, it's been like about six years or seven years and by professional, I just mean like I'm working, doing it and people get readings from me all the time, either on Zoom or phone or in person still sometimes, because luckily I have a big yard, but, um, you know, Tarot has been part of my life since about the same time rock and roll was, which I didn't even realize that until well after I was an adult, all sorts of witchy stuff and music has just been my life consistently.
0: Yeah. That's, that's, that's just so cool. It's just, um, it found you early. It found you early enough and you can just sit there and like, kind of really just, you were biting into the the early days of you know you know the germs and um, all those all those bands and the witchy stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean all of that. It's crazy. Like Belinda and I used to do spells like together all the time, and and um, like for my podcast, The Devil's Music. Um, she was going to be in town, so when I was about to start. The devil's music. Like I I I asked her if she wanted to be the guest on it, you know. And then I don't think that like my podcast network was expecting that to be like a debut podcast. <laughs> or and I don't think any of the listeners were um had ever before heard um Belinda Carlisle mention the words um menstrual blood and sex magic in a set in one sentence.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so she's esoteric as well.
1: Oh yes. Yeah. We were we were we were we were super esoteric. I mean that's the that's the funny thing. And a lot of people, at least in the LA punk scene, kind of all had really similar interests, but in those days it was so much harder to find people um that had your interests and it was so much easier to identify people by the way that they dressed, because in the 70s, if you were wearing all black which now for decades has been a uniform across like all different professions in those days people would turn and stare at you like like literally you were a ghost or a monster or so i mean they would stare in in like dumb amazement that someone that was wearing like a black t-shirt and black levi's which at that point had to be dyed black because they weren't even making them then or or you'd have to get dead stock from from the 60s when they were really tight you know uh-huh. i mean yeah all of all of those times like in the in the 70s and the early 80s and even on up until social media nowadays i think how the fuck did we all find each other and it was mostly it was mostly just like from visual cues you could probably you could tell if you saw someone that was wearing all black or wearing some kind of vintage clothes which weren't even being called vintage clothes then you know, it would just be like, let's go to a thrift store or or old clothes. Like, we didn't even, it wasn't even an aesthetic. Like, you know, we just liked, you know, I liked beautiful evening gowns from the 1930s and nobody fucking wanted them. So you could get them for like 25 cents or up to $3, which was really expensive in those days. But even the studios were selling off stuff like that, you know, and um, just, it was, it was so much different, but so the same. But so you you would identify people by by clothes, just how now mm. you might look online and see what someone's posts were and think, oh, I would like that person. You know? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I you know, and even I mean, even to this day, if you, well, I you know, really back in the day, if I saw someone with a fishbone shirt, I'd just be like, oh my god, did you see them at the Fillmore? You know? And it's, and then you make friends with them practically immediately because no one else in school likes fishbone. <laughs> they they're going. What's right. a fishbone? That's something you eat, right? And you're just like, can't talk to you. You don't know.
1: Yeah. But like even even like a few years earlier, like I just gotta say, nobody had t shirts. Not even the mm. visiting like English bands, because that was it was fucking expensive. Uh-huh. Like so in the beginning of Punk, like all of us were making our own t shirts. Like I remember I made a damned shirt and I wore it. To see the Damned at the Starwood, which was—I um, remember this date like it's my birthday. It was—it was, uh, um, was March, like April 16th and 17th, you know, 1977. They were the first—the first English punk band to put an album out, or at least they came over here, and they were also um, the first to tour over here. So everyone in LA was super excited to see the Damned, and I made a Damned shirt that looked like like a logo or a, an artwork on the back of, of the first damned album. And they were all going, where did you get, where did you get that? Where did you get that? Like, <laughs> I was like, I made it. Like I would have given it to them if it would have fit that anyone, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, did
0: they think you were bootlegging or did they know that you, that no, you they like, knew it. Oh. No, they,
1: no, they were just like, oh, they yeah. couldn't believe they, I mean, there was no sense. So, I don't think there was even like a bootlegging thing then because they were a relatively new band and they were in a new country and they were just shocked that someone had on a damn shirt, you know. But I mean, if you want to talk about bootlegging, this is funny when Iris, Barry and I, um, Iris, my publisher, when we used to be in the Ringling Sisters together and we were putting on these um, like these yearly... um, holiday fundraisers we call them the ringling sisters annual holiday fundraisers which is actually where kroq stole their kroq christmas idea from because we would we would get like major bands because we were friends with all of them yeah you know to play and it was always at the palace which is now bardo on vine but um at the first show someone that was working on our crew came running upstairs all horrified going iris pleasant there's someone bootlegging your shirts down in the parking lot and you have to come down and see it and we we went down not because (laughs) not because we wanted to shut the person down but we wanted like they had these people that were making the bootleg shirts had had taken like the ad that was in the la weekly which wasn't what our shirts looked like and just made it, and they were selling them on the sidewalk, and we we just made made him give us one because we were so excited that someone had bootleg <laughs> us. And then, and then, as soon as we walked out of earshot, Iris and I turned and said to each other, as though we'd rehearsed it, we we're like, "We've arrived." We both said it at the same time.
0: <laughs> well, people are stealing from you because you're so good. Then you know. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. Was uh, that the Ringling Sisters? Was Shauna Kenny part of that too, or is no, that? Oh, okay. No, it wasn't that the
1: Ringling Sisters was. It was originally started by Iris and I. We wanted to have it be, um, like, a, a writing group for mm-hmm. female lead singers in Hollywood. You know, and of course, then still there was no online, and we weren't going to advertise in Craigslist because we only wanted people we knew. So we would just invite people. And the original Ringling Sisters was Texacala Jones from Tex and the Horseheads, um, Debbie Dexter from the Devil Squares, um, and Deb, Debbie Pitino from Razzie Brett and Jeanette Napolitano from Concrete Blonde. And we would just sit there and read like our poems and prose to each other and make suggestions and, um, you know, like look at each other's song lyrics or sometimes turn like, um a poem like this is how you could turn it into a story or something. And what we didn't realize was that people that were hanging out at Disgraceland were living there for a while, like Dave Catching, who's you know, he's now in the Lords of Mojave. He was in Eagles of Death Metal. He was in Texan the Horseheads at the time. And also I was the first person he met in in Hollywood. He was hearing these meetings we were having because the Disgraceland living room was big and then um him and Gary Eaton, who was uh Debbie Dexter's husband at the time, um, and they were both guitar players, they started they started putting some of our poems or or you know, writing to music, and none of us had even considered that. And then suddenly the Ringling Sisters turned into a band, you know, and when it was supposed to be a respite from bands where you're constantly screaming into a microphone and everyone's using amps that are with fucked up speakers so no one can hear you and you're playing at a club with the shitty PA. It was originally just so we could work on our literary side, but of course it turned into a band. And then um, my other band at that time that was running concurrent with the Ringling Sisters and the Screaming Sirens was Honk If You're Horny, which Dave Catching and I started. And that was supposed to be a one night joke. <laughs> on Dave's birthday. And it was at Kathy de Grand, where I was booking at the time. And so he had another fake one night band called Guns and Rosie Greer. And then he had another band with other people. And that, you know, they would, but honk of your horny was Dave's and my idea. And it was it was supposed to be a trailer trash band. And eventually we started calling it country music without the O. Um, think about that for a second. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, um, I got I got it quickly because that's where <laughs> my brain goes.
1: <laughs> no, of course I know you would, but I meant for anyone listening. Um, but so, um, like I I was I'd already, but like, and how Hank Afelhorney even started was Dave and I would always be the first people at Ringling Sisters rehearsals, and then um, while we were waiting for people to show up, he'd start doodling around on the guitar. And I'd say, hey, can you play like this song by Hank Williams or something or whatever? And he'd say, yeah, and he'd start playing it. And then I would just on the spot start making up X-rated lyrics. And then and then we, we just were doing that all the time because we're both crazy. And then everyone else got really into it because the, the lyrics were funny. And then so on his birthday, we, t- we thought we'd do Honk If You're Horny as a one-off and actually Rob Zabrecki. From Possum Dixon, who's now a world famous um, magician, was in that band. Annette Zelenskis, who was in the Bangles and then the Bangs, and then In and Out of the Scream and Sirens a lot, was in Honk of Your Horny. Iris wound up in Hon- Honk. Honk of your horny had 15 fucking people in it. And some of them didn't even play instruments. Like, like we had um my friend, well, he was my boyfriend at the time, Jeff Photo, who's a great photographer. Um I told him his job was he had to be a French maid on roller skates because I had found these like women's roller skates. And for some reason, he found like a bunch of French maid outfits in a dumpster. So um, I would hide the skates from him so he wouldn't learn how to skate. And then he would, he would his job in the band was to serve the audience. Great <laughs> Cheese and Cheese Whiz. Hang on uh-huh. one second. Yeah. Hi, I'm doing a podcast. Hi, what are you doing? And, uh, take, uh okay and... come, come in here and be quiet I will <laughs>
0: sorry that's
1: fine okay um
0: someone's cooking
1: yeah no it's it's cat food it's my neighbor <laughs> oh okay okay anyway um where was it oh yeah so so um I I would hide the roller skates from him so that he wouldn't know how to skate, so he would cause absolute havoc in the uh, in the in the club. Like he'd, he'd be crashing into people and landing in people's laps or on the floor and stuff. And then we had this other guy in it who was um, his name was David, and he was an incredible pastry chef. And um, I knew him just from shows, but his job in Honk If You're Horny was um, to be his name was the inbred and he he was, he was like a little bit chubby and i i only wanted him to be chained to the drum set in a little playpen and wearing an adult diaper and drinking like you know jack daniels or something out of a bottle that had a baby nipple on it so that was <laughs> big job we had we had so many so many people like that in the band that just didn't didn't even play and so somehow south by southwest um, Whoever the head of it was at the time called me up on a landline and said, um, "You know, I, we'd really like to have Honka for Horny on uh, at, at South by Southwest." And I started laughing, and, and and he was like, "What's so funny?" And I was like, "Shut the fuck up!" And and, and then he's like, "No, I want to have you at South by Southwest." And I was like, "Oh yeah, right." You know, because <laughs> this is uh-huh. like in the early days of South by Southwest. And then he kept saying, no, I really do. And I was like, okay, maybe you want us at South by Southwest, but let's just get one thing straight. This is a joke band. We're not going to pay for 15 people to fucking right. fly out there and get a hotel room and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I will pay for everything. And I was like, wow. On. And he's like, no I want you guys and I said okay well we're not doing it unless we can have like the middle set at Emo's on a Saturday night and he was like done and then I mean <laughs> so we wound up we wound up going to South by Southwest <laughs> and all I, sorts of other crazy shit happened in the middle of that like like Jello Biafra was there for some reason I I mean not for some reason but he showed up at the Hunk of Your Horny set for some reason and the next thing I know he's got like a bottle of cheese whiz in each hand and he's like spraying it. It's the audience. <laughs> And and also I had my birthday there that year because you know, South by Southwest is always in March. And so there was a wild party. I can't remember if it was before or after the hunk of the horny gig, but I was dancing on top of a table and somehow I slipped because uh, go figure there was like wetness because everyone was drinking. <laughs> And so I went zooming down the table and and like sort of caught myself just sort of the edge. It was a really long table. And um Bruce Herring, who was an editor at Variety then, was he's like, hi, pleasant, happy birthday. And I was like, Hi, who are you? You know, and he he introduced himself. (laughs) Then he said, "I want you to write for Variety." And I was, I was like, so drunk again. I was like, "Shut the fuck up!" (laughs) And he's like, "No, I want you to write for Variety." I was like, "You're asking me like this." (laughs) so it that is, so yeah. so your
0: interview for variety was uh slipping on a table right into uh one of the yeah
1: shit face drunk and screaming yeah. and stuff and then being really belligerent and so then I didn't like, give me your card uh, I don't believe you um but I'll call you when I get home and so then you know I got home in a few days but I completely forgot about it until like days later I was like what's this what's in my pocket yeah
0: he
1: was yep. like, hearing variety so I called him up and I was like uh hi, this is pleasant we um, met at South by Southwest because I didn't know how to proceed. And and he was like, oh, hello. And I was like, do, do you really want me to write for Variety? And he's like, yes. And I was like, oh, yay. <laughs> so I was the first person that ever wrote um, for Variety on The Hollywood Reporter together at that time. You know. So, so they- the,
0: I think the moral of this story is when, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Seriously. And not only that, but like something that you feel like is just something silly and fun to do. All of a sudden, if you're just doing it and having fun with it, and I mean, you know, handcuffing someone to the drum you know, having a member that's just the guy handcuffed it. I think that's great. And it's just like, and then people respond to it, and before you know it, you're writing for variety. No, <laughs> I, like, know, I, I know.
1: I uh, know. My, I mean. I, I know I'm going to sound kind of like a jerk to say this, but my whole life has been like that. I've just like every, I everything that I wanted to do has happened. Everything that I would like think about. I mean, it's just it's it's pretty magical. And And I'm not saying like, oh, I'm magical. I have the manifestation power. But I think exactly what you said is true. Right. Like if you just have dreams. Like, and, and you sort of even focus on them. I mean, that in witchcraft you would call manifestation and I've been doing it my entire life. All I ever wanted to do was live in Hollywood and then look what happened, you know? It was just, uh, everything, like the twists of fate in my life have been incredible and I, I'm just really grateful for it. Um. Someone, someone said to me like a couple of weeks ago, oh, but everything's always been handed to you on a silver platter. And I was like, um... I saw opportunities and I worked my ass off. You know, like it, it it wasn't you know just just because I was in the right place at the right time. I mean, and sometimes it was, but you know, a, a lot of times when when I was in the right place at the right time, like with Bruce Herring, that could have blown it if it was <laughs> if it was somebody else. Yeah. You know, but um, I don't know. It's just, it's just been, I've been very, very lucky and I've I've always felt that ever since I was little.
0: I think that's great. Pleasant. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Uh, you're welcome. I know, I know this interview was sounds kind of psychotic, but Hey, that's
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, that it's, it's what we do here.
1: <laughs> yes. I figured <laughs> great minds think alike. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me.
0: and game in on drinks with tony check out her new book rock and roll witch a memoir of sex magic drugs and rock and roll next week on the show we have ernesto mastre reed discussing his new book sacrificio go create some magic i'll see you next week you're listening to 101.9 fm kpcr lp santa cruz